This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today, a phenomenal episode. We've got James Evans. He is a developer in the city of Vancouver. He does a ton of stuff in East Vancouver. Great conversation at Kokomo Studios with James Evans. Yeah, and you know what? James is so down to earth. Right. That he was like, just call me James. Like, we're like, what are you? What are you, the president and CEO of? He's like, Guy in jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah. Call me James. Guy named James. But he's done some amazing projects. I think a lot of people are going to know right off Commercial Drive, the townhome development with the Heritage Home Jeff's Residences, which is kind of, right. at least if you're walking around that neighborhood, I feel like it's famous. Burke House on the corner. If you're ever driving down Victoria at Victorian Parker, there's a fairly recent heritage conversion that James did. Ella on the Nimo, the first of the new multifamily going on between Hastings and First. Ella, that's James as well. Once you start looking for James Evans, you'll see him, that's for sure. And really, really great conversation with James today. Yeah, today we cover so much with James, kind of the origin story, how he got his start from uh, working in it with a building company, basically, to getting into development on his own. We talk about his favorite areas in Vancouver, how he's kind of found riches in the niches. Right. Uh, my word's not his. And, um, and and also, what he buy right now? Yeah, what he like, buy right what, now? And we're talking, we sat down with James today, which is July 6th. Yes. So July 6th, 2022, what he buy right now? I think that's the last question we ask him. Yeah. So there's it's a great conversation with James. Uh, you're really going to enjoy this one. Before we get to that, Matt, I am in like a chocolate coma right now. Again, I find myself in this all the time on account of eating so much chocolate. <laughs> so much bloody chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Well, you, it was, it was your client. Yeah. Mike and my, Lisa. my client. Yeah. Like, I had to help them stick handle a few things when you were off. Right. But they very appreciative and generous people. They dropped off. Would Some you of say best. 50 pounds of chocolate? Like, I, I don't I, know how much they, it was. They dropped off like and and it's like the kind of chocolate I would never buy because it's too expensive. It's Thomas like Haas. Yeah, Tommy Haas. Oh, yeah, Tommy Haas. Tommy right. Bahamas. Oh, everybody else knows. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's what you got to wear. Tommy Bahamas <laughs> after you've eaten this bag. It's only, uh, only original fit. This is a massive box of chocolate. And we proceeded to like basically... We were like, like we got to go do the intro. Let's first eat like a grab bag. How many? I would say like legitimately 25 chocolates. I each. think there's probably a couple hundred dollars worth of chocolate. <laughs> that, that we ate. And, and but we sampled everything. Just made sure we touched it and licked it, and, and <laughs> just so just in case so no one else, Sonia or Melissa came back, yeah, they exactly. wouldn't have any. No one else in the office can try it. <laughs> no, but honestly, the worst part about it though is I'm in such a bad state right now. I'm like I'm in a cold sweat. Uh, I, kinda, I just feel disgusting. I haven't done. Delicious. I haven't done that since 
Christmas, maybe. So, uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, good. We're in a good place. But before we get to our... Do you mind our... if I take my shoes off? <laughs> I'm so constricted right <laughs> now. As long as it's not I, your shirt. I'm, I'm just... It's just so... Uh, it's I'm like just, trying to get comfortable, but like, I'm not sure what, yeah. It's my skin I'm trying to get out of. Uh, anyways. So before we get to our talk with James, we did just send out the stats. Right. So let's just briefly touch on the stats because I feel like we are pretty positive last week on, on the market. And I would say these stats are, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to digest. Yeah. And I feel like the media headlines, I saw one business in Vancouver, something about Vancouver real estate plummeting. And that's not necessarily what we're seeing on the ground. So let's talk sales ratios. I'm trying to cut the noise right now. Just put my head down. But I honestly, this is last month. I would make the case that we're in a transitioning moment right now. But at, let's talk about that a bit more in a, in a minute. Sure. But first, let's cover the sales ratios in kind of the, the Vancouver, city of Vancouver so, and so kind of immediate surrounding areas. Let's do this rapid fire. Uh, but first, for people that don't know sales ratios, essentially 11% and below is a buyer's market. Over a sustained period. Yeah. yeah and 18% and above is a seller's market or so, 19% right, and above. So almost basically and two out of a, every 10 homes being absorbed uh, yeah, or more is and a, 11 is a to 18 market. is called a balanced market. But this will give you an idea of kind of what the markets have been done in the last month based on the stats here. So, all yeah. right, Adam, here we go. Downtown Vancouver. Downtown Vancouver up to 900K is still a pretty aggressive seller's market at 30%. 30% and above for anything under 900K. Yeah. All right. Single family homes west side up to 2.75. So the entry level houses on the west side are still very active. So that's 30% uh, 30 above. 30% or more. Wow. Townhomes and condos on the west side. How are those faring? So basically under two or sorry, 1.25 and below. So up to 1.25 is 30% or higher sales ratios. Wow. Pretty aggressive sales yeah. market. All right, let's move to the east side. East side, single family. 1.75 million and below is 30% or more. And you made the point, this feels like pre-COVID in that 1.75 and below, at least on the east side, was kind of where it was remaining busy yeah. in that slower 2018, 2019 this moment. Feels back. Like we're going back to where, and then the we kind of went to like where I was like, "Whoa, two point two five areas busy in, on the east side." That's crazy, two point five or whatever. Yeah. Right? And now we're moving back down to where it's like, "All right, one point seven five and below, kind of entry level single family." It's kind of where it was pre COVID, like the flurry of activity. That's right? where it the sales feels, are. It feels that way. Condos and townhomes on the east side, Matt, up to one point five. Uh, a That's surprising. Market. So it's still very busy up to 1.5. On the east side. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about North Van because we on our group thread, we, I texted something earlier this week about North Van rents have actually surpassed Vancouver rents. Yeah. Apparently. So, which is to say Vancouver's known as I think the, has the most expensive rents in all of Canada. Now that honor goes to North Vancouver, which is kind of crazy. Not much of an honor. But not much of an honor, but in terms of sales ratios and in terms of busy markets, I think North Van's arguably the busiest market we're talking about. Well, it it's is so based on the numbers. It's so weird sometimes because Vancouver can be so busy and North Van can be can be quite soft or, or, or slow, right? Right. Like there's, there's a, for how connected the markets are, there's a, often it, it seems like night and day, right? That's right. So detached in North Vancouver, up to 2.75 million is a seller's and below is a seller's market, which is pretty crazy, right? Yeah. Because uh, you often think about North Van and 
and East Van as being kind of similar price points. Condos up to $2 million is a, is a seller's market. And, and when you say sellers, we're still at the 30%, 30% or more. So yeah, we're, we're not even doing the like, oh, it's at 19%. We're going to no, call that a seller's it's, market. It's like it's a 30. firmly established seller's like market. Like stuff is still moving. And I can say I competed for a three-bedroom condo last night in Lynn Valley. Okay. And there's two points to this story. One is the last sale in the building. It was one of those fairly rare circumstances where on the same floor plate, it's a four story wood frame building. We were on the second floor, the fourth floor sold in March, mid March. And I was thinking, okay, well it sold for a million 60, you know, that probably puts us on the high side at a million 50 now, not even taking into account maybe a slight decline in prices since mid-March. Sure, not the same activity as Yeah, March. they were on at a million 29. Four offers sold subject free a million 80. Wow. And this is the second time this has happened to me in North Van where you're, where you're expecting, okay, well, w- let's just even say the market's exactly the same as, as the last sale at the end of February and people are outbidding. And I think the reason I bring this up is not only to point out that North Van is still very that busy. you're undershooting North Van. Yeah. <laughs> But more so that the real estate board stats are saying, and I I don't doubt the accuracy of these stats, that condos in North Vancouver over the last three months have actually declined in in the, the benchmark price. And what I think is happening is in a market like this, and we talk about tier one, tier two properties, tier one being like the, the property, perfect, the perfect like the, property, it everybody loves to everybody. Yep. Tier two having some issue with it. I think the tier two stuff is sitting and the tier two stuff to get it sold, they're adjusting price right. to get it sold. But that tier one that is still moving and like this, we're talking over a million bucks for a condo and four people showed up with subject free offers and were willing to pay over over a March price for the top floor in a wood frame building, which is clearly the superior unit. And every, and everybody that's not familiar with this tier one, tier two, tier three kind of concept in, in busy, super busy markets, everything gets absorbed, right? right? And then in softer markets where buyers have more selection, it's, it's kind of like the best product on the market gets absorbed. So when you have a lot going for you, you're, you're still going to sell in a market like this, but we, I, it does feel like we are in a transition clearly. And when I, if I, if I pulled sales ratios from March, say, right, we would see a lot of stuff in that kind of 50 to 80% oh, seller's market, like we're super aggressive. Yeah. And now we're seeing like a busier market is closer to like 30 to 50%, right? Like a busier sub market. Right. It feels to me a lot like we are transitioning. My guess, and I, I'll put it out there, is not as bad as, you know, some of the media or Twitter, but my guess is we're going to continue to see falling sales ratios. And I think there is a chance that we will see a lot of sales ratios kind of in that, you know, 10 to 20% and, and, you know, maybe even some below, but there'll be some opportunities for buyers coming up. Oh, and there are, and, there are already some opportunities. Oh, absolutely. Let's, yeah. let's talk about that a bit because one thing I'm noticing is uh, one is a lot of the, we, you know, we talked about how spotty the market's been with people getting skunked. The waiting on offers thing in a lot of cases is blowing up in sellers' faces right now, like a low bait price waiting on offers. Especially offer. the very aggressive yeah, low yeah. price, right? I, I, not like, are hey, not, we're going to put it on sharp. But people are not wanting to compete right now. The days There's of, no appetite. It's it's uh, There's not a huge appetite. And the other thing right now is that, you know, there's stuff like if, if you're willing to kind of compromise for not the perfect kind of turnkey property, 
there's some decent deals out there, right? And I mean, this is this is really it. And we're probably coming up on another interest rate increase in about a week Very, and a half yeah. from now. Very soon. So you would expect some more downward pressure on pricing. You'd expect some some softening with the uh, with it, just across the board in terms of sales ratios. Tough to say. Also, my kids out of school, as is uh, three quarters of the market, which means people are focused on other things right now. So yeah, let's just say it, I suspect you're right. Pretty slow summer. But Adam, maybe we should cut to our talk with James. I love this conversation. James Evans, he's a developer in Vancouver. And, he's, a, he's a guy named James. He does, he's uh, rebranded his company here. He does, it's a big reveal at the end. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehaus. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with James Evans. He is a developer in Vancouver. How are you doing, James? I'm doing fine, thanks. Yeah, thanks uh, so much. It's great to have you down in the studio, James. Thanks for taking the time. And, and cycled over here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from, from your home in East Vancouver. Yeah, well, the sun finally showed up. It's right. Been a, been a long wait this spring. <laughs> so, so, James, maybe uh, just to start things off, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I guess I'm a long time developer. I've been doing this for about 25 years now. Um, in the past decade or so, I've been focusing on doing a whole variety of projects, mainly in Vancouver. I've done some stuff in Surrey as well. Uh, and they've ranged from, uh, heritage restoration or maybe rescue is probably a better term projects to mixed use projects to townhomes, homes, uh, to some rentals as well. So I know you've been on your own for about 12 years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And working in the industry before. Were you working for another developer before that? or? Yeah, I worked for a couple of developers previously. Um, I started working for a company called Progressive Construction way, way back when and was there with Progressive and then a, a successor company called Suncor. It was owned by one of Millen's, um, uh, I think she was the EVP of, of uh, Progressive. And then when things, and that was back in the late 1990s when it was pretty tough to earn a living in this business. So in the early sort of 2000s, I left and went and worked for a real estate advisory service uh, who looked to reposition real estate 
estate. And then as the market started to improve, we moved towards, uh, you know, getting back in the building business. And we're starting to build up an inventory of homes, predominantly out in Surrey, South Surrey and East Surrey. And then Lehman Brothers imploded in 2009. And so that kind of put paid to that. Uh, we managed to kind of work our, our way out of that. But then the fellow that I was working for at the time um, decided he was had enough and he was going to retire and close down his company, which is exactly what he did. So I was left with a choice of either going and finding a job somewhere else or holding my nose and jumping off the deep end and hoping to God there was a little water in the pool when I landed. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that, that I'm just thinking about here is starting in the in the 90s when it sounds like it was a maybe a bit rougher of a go than it has been over the last decade or or so. Why real estate? Why did I get into real estate in the first place or why? Yeah. Um, well, it was actually kind of an accident. I didn't really, I went through university and I uh, got a Bachelor of Commerce in Transportation Economics. I was actually a transportation economist and was working for a number of governmental agencies like highways and BC ferries for a while. And um, I was working on contract for them. And then when that came to an end, I was presented with an opportunity to join uh, Progressive. And I didn't know anything at all about the business. I didn't even know what a title was. But I met um, uh, Olga, who was the number two person there, Olga Illich, and chatted with her and you know, she needed some help and didn't really care if I knew very much. And for me, it was an interesting new opportunity. So I jumped in and basically got thrown into the shark tank, as it were, and, you know, was left to sink or swim. And I guess I must have swum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, James, I like we, we're familiar with a lot of your projects. And yep. you, you do a lot of stuff in East Vancouver, a lot of stuff in Grandview Woodlands. Why East Vancouver? Like, what do you like about East Vancouver? Well, I guess maybe it fits a little bit of my philosophy. I've always sort of looked at where all my colleagues and competitors, you know, are attracted to places like the Canby Corridor and stuff like that. And I go the other way. So I, I, as I say, I prefer to be where other people are not. And I prefer to do something that is, you know, sort of a little bit different. Doesn't, isn't just a straightforward, you know, meat and potatoes housing. Like that's what I started doing in the business. We were, uh, when I started working for Progressive, uh, we were developing big tracts of land out in Surrey. Of course, uh, Millen at that point in time was developing Terra Nova as well, which is a large subdivision in northwest Richmond. Uh, you know, just building tract housing. And, you know, that's fine. There's a good business doing that. But it's not really, I wouldn't call it something that's a legacy. I probably couldn't find some of the early projects that I built years and years ago. And as I gradually sort of evolved through the business uh, and started to learn more about different project types, different forms of development. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've mainly stuck in the residential space over all these years. Uh, you know, I, I started to find things that kind of interested me. And then when I went off on my own, I sort of thought, well, how do I, like, where do I want to be? This is such a big, uh, you know, there's so many different directions you can go in in real estate. Are you an industrial builder? Are you a commercial builder? Are you a residential builder? If you're doing residential, you're doing wood frame, you're doing concrete, you're doing mixed use. And, you know, I needed to sort of pick a spot and you can't be all things. So I gravitated to what I knew best and based on my experience, which was essentially ground-oriented wood frame, uh, single family and, and multifamily. And that's where I started. And then um, I went out and I looked for different areas. Uh, you know, so I started, so once I'd identified that, then I had to think about where I wanted to be. And I started looking around East Vancouver. And the thing that's, you know, nice about East Vancouver is you can do things that are a little bit quirky and a little bit different. And it's something the market will accept. You know, some of the projects I've done, like heritage projects, for example, if I tried to do that in other areas, like, you know, West Vancouver, for example, where I know some have been done, or even the west side of Vancouver, uh, you you know, the, the market is 
is much, I guess, more prescribed in terms of what their expectations are. You know, and I won't say anything goes in East Vancouver, but I think people are a lot more open-minded about what um, what they're what they're looking for and prepared to accept. And if it's got a little bit of an edge of quirkiness to it, then that's really going to be well received by the marketplace. That's an interesting take, eh? I think that because often, you know, you're right. It sounds like you're using working in potentially heritage, you've done the heritage restoration type projects or rescues. And often it's uh, people are looking for for spaces that are, are not cookie cutter. Well, you know, the first project I did on my own was called the Jeff's Residences, which is a 20 unit um, heritage conversion plus townhouse infill just to block off commercial drive. So there was 13 townhomes there. There are 1,300 square feet plus or minus three bedroom townhomes, which are designed to appeal to families. And, you know, I think the market understands what that looks like. And it was just a matter of building them in a manner that, you know, that was appropriate for that market. But in the heritage house, there were seven units in that. And all the units were a little bit weird, to be blunt, because they all had to fit within the context of an existing building that was never designed to be a multifamily building. It had been built for a doctor back in 190, I think it was 1908 or something like that. And he built it as his house and then he had his office in the back. So it was never designed to be condominium. So we came up with a plan that provided for seven, yeah, six, two bedrooms and one one bedroom unit in the project. And when we went to the market, we, we started with the townhomes because they got done before the heritage house. And we opened up the uh, sales office and started bringing people in and I was terrified that I was going to get stuck with this albatross of this house with all these weird, you know, two-bedroom units. I mean, they all they had all the things that a two-bedroom unit would have. You know, they had a one-and-a-half bath and a kitchen and a living room and two bedrooms and, you know, but every, all the layouts were a little bit weird because we had to work around existing window placements, existing geometry of the house uh, and I thought that people were going to be totally turned off by that and so after our first weekend, a sales team came back to me and they said, well, we've had a lot of interest in the Heritage House. You know, probably half the people who've come in have asked about that. So are you you know, it's not ready yet, but do you want to bring it to the market? I said, sure. So we brought it to the market the following weekend. And much to my surprise, we sold the whole thing out in 48 hours and I had backup offers. So that was that was another sort of one of those sort of evolutionary teachable lessons that you learn as you kind of walk down this this trail. And so I took the same lessons that I applied or sort of learned from that and applied them to other projects as I went forward. But, you know, you need to make sure you can't get away with that in all markets. Right. I was going to say one yeah. thing that strikes me is it sounds like the East Van market kind of you're able to wed that idea of like building housing. Like you, you mentioned legacy, like interesting things that you can kind of look at and point to and be proud of with a marketplace that is kind of looking for quirky things. If I understand. Well, yeah, there's that. The other thing, too, is that I've been focused predominantly, like, that's the other thing I had to think about when I started is I want to be in a, a, you know, a new emerging neighborhood, like, I don't know, Metro Town in Burnaby, for example, or, you know, some of the new or Camby Corridor in Vancouver, you know, the areas that have just been opened up and that are, are turning themselves into or transforming into some new neighborhood or, uh, or they want to stay out of that. And I chose to stay out of that and deliberately looked for little infill opportunities because every neighborhood has got some discrete demand for people who live in the neighborhood and need another housing choice. And, uh, you know, in the case of the uh, the Jeff's project, that was a neighborhood that was consisted of predominantly single-family homes or duplexes. Uh, but there's no condos there unless you go on the other side of Commercial Drive. And, uh, you know, but there's people who, who grew up in that area and had, had to move out because there wasn't a housing choice for them or they, you know, alternatively lived in the neighborhood but wanted to downsize or whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, so I realized that there were some opportunities there and that's exactly who we ended up with. I'd say that probably, I figured that I was probably going to get three 
groups of buyers of that particular project. I was going to get what I call Westside refugees, people who grew up in Carousel like I did and went, well, we're not going to afford to live here, so we've got to go further east. Um, locals from the neighborhood and uh, maybe some what I'll call upsizers who are coming from Yale Town or downtown who wanted a little bit more space because they were going to start a family. Uh, and I would say probably three quarters of the people that were there were locals just moving around the neighborhood. Which was uh, which was interesting. So that's why the you know the projects that I've done subsequent to that have been predominantly infill projects. Um, you know, in neighborhoods, uh, in existing neighborhoods or established neighborhoods, or alternatively, if I go and I do a project in in a new emerging area, you know, like a new area that's been rezoned as a plan, I try to be one of the first out mm-hmm. because you can capture that sort of that segment of the market that wants to stay in the neighborhood and, and move around the neighborhood. Like Ella's a good example of that. We were the first project. A mixed-use project that came out in that area, even though that whole corridor has been rezoned for mixed-use projects. And probably 50 to 60% of the people that we got were locals who were moving around the neighborhood. That, that's what I, so, and Ella, just for anyone listening that doesn't know, is on the Nimo and Grant. Right. Which has been, now has been, it's pretty clear, is going to be all six-story wood frame buildings right along the Nimo. but Ella's the first. And that's that was my impression, and I think, you know, I've, I just mentioned I was through the building. It looks fantastic. It just finished. Yep. But yeah, it was people from basically the neighborhood purchasing in there for the most part. Yeah, we had, um, well, I'll give you an example. We, you know, as part of our marketing campaign on that, we pre-sold and sold out the whole project before we started. And we uh, we put together those little mailers, uh, you know, the mailbox that uh, the Canada Post drops off to some specified postal codes. And I always have trouble measuring whether or not we get any value out of those things. Sure. You know, you go and you spend... So do we. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You go and spend thousands of dollars on these and they go and get delivered to, you know, a couple thousand addresses and you never know if anybody shows up. Our mail lady walked in with one of these things, uh, walked into her sales office and bought four homes. Four. Four. So, and it turned out that her, her parents lived in the neighborhood, and she did, and her brother, and there was some other relative in the neighborhood as well. And they all were looking for, you know, the parents lived in a large house. They needed to downsize, and they wanted a place where they could be back together again. So they all bought units in the townhouse in, in that project, which I, was very interesting to me. I never had that happen before. You know, Maybe just thinking about Jeff's residences, because one thing that, you know, I think we we both live in Grandview Woodlands, and I'm just thinking, there strikes me as that project, and then you did the project, and I don't even know if it has a name on Parker and Victoria. Yes, Burkhouse. Burkhouse. Yeah. Okay, so Burkhouse as well. These heritage restorations, it's like, it's like such a, I walked by there last night with my wife's parents from out of town, and they were like, oh my God, like it's such a beautiful addition to the neighborhood, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it looks so great. But there's a lot of opposition in that neighborhood. It's fairly organized to, to at least mega towers. <laughs> yeah. If you're seeing the signs, there's sort of two things that strike me as challenging. One is heritage restoration from getting things through the city seems like a very challenging process. But I guess with some FSR additions, like it seems there's a lot of people that wouldn't take that on, I guess is my yeah. point. And then building in, in Grandview seems like potentially landmines that I might not even realize but I guess it it allows you to be in like exist in that niche by yourself. Can you talk about some of the early challenges with the Jess residences that you might not have foresaw? Yeah, sure. Well, there's two different pieces there. The one is the actual building the thing. The other is getting them approved. So the Jess project was done under a policy tool of the city at the time called Heritage Revitalization Agreements, which was kind of like a rezone. It's, it's a rezone, but not a rezone. It still required council approval and a public hearing. 
so the I started that process by going out and having a public open house, which I held at the Colch with um, my architect and some staff from the city. And I had, I think, about 80 angry people who came in with pitchforks and jumped up and down and yelled and screamed and made a big fuss. And I, and so planning staff ran for the hills and my architect looked at me as he was putting the easels in the back of the truck afterwards. He said, I think you're screwed. And off he went. <laughs> so I went, wonderful. Here I go. This might be a very short journey. <laughs> yeah, I'm be looking for a job pretty quick. Yeah, there's, exactly. there's no water in the pool. There was no water. So I had to, you know, step back and regroup a little bit and think about what the uh, the issue was. And I realized I was talking about all the wrong things on that. So I went to the open house and uh, the first open house and I started, you know, talking, having responses to all the usual complaints that you hear. Uh, you know, it's too big. It's, uh, you know, they don't like the setbacks, too much traffic, you know, all the usual sort of stuff that you hear people whine and groan about in public hearings for forever. And the... And as I reflected on that and, and talked to a few of the sort of the key stakeholders, you know, because I live a block away from the site, so, I, you know, I'm part of the neighborhood as well. I realized I was talking about the wrong thing. You know, here was an old house that was a beloved asset and legacy in the neighborhood. And I didn't actually realize that probably half of city staff and half of council had either lived in that house at one point or had friends who lived in that house. So it was actually well known. I didn't right. know that when I started. I don't know, boy, what have I got myself into? And I realized that the I should have been talking about the house. The fellow who'd owned it at that point in time was a lovely person, you know, for about 30 years. And it was at a point in its time where it needed a major, you know, it needed a bunch of capital to be invested into it. It was going to fall down. And he was, you know, it was past point in his life where he was able to do it. He'd always had these aspirations to sort of fix it up, and it just never happened. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, let's have a second open house, which I did. And I thought, but let's let's talk about the house. And like, forget about everything else, because I can't do anything about the fact that there'll be more traffic, and there'll be more residents, and it's going to displace renters. And yes, yes, those are all issues, but let's talk about the house. And basically, I, I uh, when people came in, I firstly headed at the house so people could come in and see what poor shape it was in, uh, as opposed to having it at the culture or some other sort of a venue that was away from it. And uh, then basically asked people three questions. Is this house worth saving? Yes or no? And and if the answer is yes, then I've got a plan to take and save it. What do you think of this? And if you don't like it, well, what's your idea? You know, here's a piece of paper, go draw something up. And that sure changed, changed the conversation around because suddenly people could not only see it, but then they could realize that, you know, we're talking about they, like they'd accepted the fact that uh, that something was going to change, whether it was me right. who bought it and fixed up the house, or whether it was some other builder who bought it and bulldozed it, uh, because the highest and best use for that site was five duplexes. I think it sat on five lots, if I remember right. And what I was able to do was kind of change that conversation. So when the time came to go to council, I actually was able to bring a bunch of the people who had opposed it initially down to council <laughs> to put in a good word yeah. for it. And, you know, and yes, there was um, some tenants who were getting displaced as well, which, you know, so I looked after them. But one of them, unfortunately, had been there for a long, long time. And she ended up ultimately moving next door, but she ended up being a friend of one of the councillors at the time. Uh, so she stood up at the public hearing and started crying and the councillor started crying. And I went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> This is not good. There's uh, a lot of crying in those counselors. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of crying. Anyway, it was got approved unanimously. And, um, you know, so the, obviously the project got done. But that's a challenge that you have. And whether, it's, you know, Grandview Woodland happens to be a particularly boisterous neighborhood, as I'm sure that everybody's seen with the conversations about the Safeway site on, um, on Broadway and Commercial. And the thing is, too, that like people just fundamentally don't like change. And obviously what I was doing represented change. And people over in that neighborhood to layer it on top of that don't particularly like developers. 
uh, it helped, I think, that I was a local in the neighborhood, so they could see that I wasn't, you know, some guy who was parachuting in from downtown in a fancy suit and a fancy car telling them what they should be. I'm just a normal guy who's walking around in jeans and a T-shirt with a couple of kids and a house and a mortgage, just like everybody else. So that that helped a little bit, too. And so after a while, I think that particularly my most ardent detractors decided that, you know, that maybe I was okay. They still didn't like what I did for a living, but they thought I was okay. And then when the house got built and the project was finished, then everyone went, great, this is great. Even my most ardent uh, opponent afterwards had to grudgingly admit that this was actually kind of a good thing. Right. So, but I spent about a year, I, was, I went through that process, walking around with a bullseye on the back of my head <laughs> in well, the neighborhood. Yeah, and I want to get, I, I, I have a question about that because I'm, I'm curious to hear what it's like to develop in your own neighborhood. But I, I have to say the one thing about the, you know, when you're going through the process of giving people a piece of paper and saying, do you have an, a better idea? That's a great way of probably proving that not a lot of people had a good idea other than, uh, well, or who knows? I mean, but it's, it's one of those things like here, if you have a good idea, we'd love to hear it as well. Right. And, and showing that well, showing that you're rescuing a house is, has well, to just, be, it kind of puts the ball back at them. I mean, I, right. you know, if they sit there and they accuse me of adding more traffic or, you know, or, or building something that's higher, well, you can't really defend that. The answer is yes, of course I am. Right. But if you say that we're trying to build a conversation around keeping this old house, let's engage you in the process. Like if, if you think it's worth keeping, then let's talk about how we're going to keep that. Yeah. And that's, you know, so that, as you say, that actually was was another one of those sort of teachable moments. That's that's a way that you can, uh, you know, that you can sort of kind of put it back on the people who are out there to oppose you. Say, well, rather than come here and throw rocks at me, why don't you actually give me some ideas that are const- like have a const- constructive conversation about this? Sure. Uh, you know, rather than just sit there and go through the usual sort of acrimonious process that public hearings usually end up being. Well, I, I used to hear stories about developers that would build a building and keep the penthouse and then ride the elevator down with everybody that uh, had bought into their building. And I thought, how crazy do you got to be to do that? But but I guess you're you're kind of developing in areas that you, where you live. Well, and right? you're going to walk by it yourself <laughs> and people are going to know the guy down the street is the guy who built this. And Well, it was interesting. About a year and a half after the project was finished, I got an email from one of the residents who was there and all the people who moved in were generally you know, quite, quite happy. I mean, they were thrilled to be there. They loved the project and it's all, it was great. It was heartwarming. Uh, but they were having a little, um, uh, little get together. And I guess that the, somebody from a staff member from the city was coming to give them the heritage plaque and they were going to put it up and they were going to have a little, you know, plaque mounting ceremony and they wanted to invite me over to it. And I had mixed feelings about it because as a builder, if you go back to projects afterwards, you know, you hear people complain about, oh, drywall screw pops and, you know, I don't like this. <laughs> My neighbor's a jerk and, you know, all the rest of those sort of things. <laughs> And I, I thought, do I really want to go back and listen to all that? But I decided to do it anyway, uh, you know, just just to go back. And there were a few people in there that I got to know through the sales process, uh, including one particularly determined lady who was absolutely convinced that she wanted to buy one of the units in the house and was not going to let go of me until I agreed to sell it to her, which we did ultimately, and she's very happy. But the reaction that I got there was, like, you know, everybody was just, I didn't hear a thing about any of the stuff in the project. They were all totally thrilled to be there. They loved the project. They were thankful that it got done. And and it was it was just, it was a very pleasant experience. And I'm glad that, and, and the other thing that had happened too is I wanted to create some family housing that was there because the site was about, it's about half an acre. It was, I think, 100 and, 
50 by 130 feet or something like that. But we've created a little common courtyard in there. It was a nice sort of safe, self-contained space. And we sold the townhomes units to predominant. I think we had one family who moved in, but then the rest of them were younger couples who were planning to start a family. And the thing that I learned when I went over to that open house is that everybody moved in and they started breeding. I think there were nine kids that were there that had been born in that project. And the nice thing is, is that all the kids knew each other. They felt like it was a safe space. So, you know, you may not know where your son or daughter was, but you just lean out in the courtyard and yell for little Susie or whoever it was, right? And they'd show up somewhere else down the way. So it'd become this true community because people at similar points in their life, um, you know, who wanted to start families were, or who had families had moved into the project and they all felt comfortable with each other within the, within the context of a site that was, you know, not... The problem with some of these larger projects is just so impersonal. When you're in a condo building with 200 units, well, you don't really know your neighbors. But if you've got 20, chances are you probably know them. And, you know, and so you'll feel safe letting your kids go around and play with other kids in that area. So it was, that was, I think, very gratifying to me because that's one of the things that I want to try and do. There's a real shortage of family housing everywhere in Vancouver, and particularly sure. in that neighborhood at that time. And by making the townhomes a little bit smaller than comparable half duplexes, we were able to make them more affordable uh, for people and bring them out for... I can't remember what the number was, maybe 10% less, 10 to 15% less than you buy a duplex for, which was a difference for some people being able to being, being able to actually get into the neighborhood or not. And so there was, you say, a number of people who were able to get into that because it was, you know, affordable. I use that term in parentheses because there's no such thing as affordable in Vancouver, but it's all, you know, it's all relative. You, you know, I'm just thinking about that being your first uh, open house experience. And I think the conversation actually over the last 12 years has actually changed a bit. I'm just wondering if you've seen a different, like, it seems like saving a heritage home is less important today than the missing middle housing that you're basically providing. Are you seeing that in when you go to engage the public on on projects recently? Is there is it a different conversation or is it relatively the same still, like parking and... Oh, that's, that's, it's always parking. It's always mass and it's always density. It's too big. It's too tall. It's too fat. It's too ugly. It's all, you know, it's always the same thing. I've don't think I've ever heard anything in all the years and public hearings and open houses that I, that surprises me because you always hear the same old comment. Uh, and because the people who show up for open houses are, there's some people who are usually curious or mildly concerned, but the people who show up and jump up and down the screen are the ones who are opposed. People who, who either support them or indifferent are off doing the other things they've got in their lives. You know, they've got kids to get to baseball games and they've got jobs and they've got, you know, all the rest of that sort of stuff. And so they, they don't pay any attention to them. So the only people that you ever meet at these generally are people who, uh, you know, are, are opposed. And after a while, as you say, it's just, you know, I can predict before one of these things happens. I've been to lots of public hearings in, in my life and I've been lots of open houses and, you know, it's always the same old thing. After a while, it really gets tiring. You know, the thing that differentiated Jeff's, I guess, is this, this was the first public open house for one of my projects that had my money in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I jumped off the, I jumped off the pool and there, sorry, jumped off the diving board and there's no going back. Yeah. It makes you wonder how useful these these open houses are. Well, I mean, that's a completely different conversation. <laughs> I think we don't have to go there. But no. it, it just there's a lot of consultation, right? Well, I think that there's uh, we've got to find a better way collectively of doing what we do right now. We don't have enough housing. We all know that. There's a real shortage of housing, of all types of housing. I mean, the, I shouldn't say all types of housing, particularly missing middle housing and housing that's suitable for families. Uh, you know, the high-end stuff that's out there, that market will always look after itself. But, uh, you know, for young families who want to come into Vancouver and, you know, who want, or want to return to Vancouver from somewhere else because they've had to move out to, you know, pick your municipality, Burnaby, Surrey, Richmond, because they haven't been able to find anything in Vancouver that they could afford or anything 
that was suitable for them, and we just simply don't produce enough of it here. And our, you know, our approvals process is uh, is so glacial and so painful that it's really, you know, I guess from the perspective of a developer, if you can actually get anything approved, it's great because it means probably your competitors can, <laughs> or at least they're right. a long way behind it. But still, as a society, is that good for us? No, we should be finding better ways to get things done more quickly, more expeditiously. I mean, I went through a um, rezoning process for a 35-unit moderate income rental building I'm doing in kits. Six-night public hearing. It was crazy. Six nights. Um, with I can't remember how many speakers that were there, all to create much-needed rental housing in an area where there there's very little. You know, if you're a tenant and you want to live in that neighborhood, but well, you're looking at somebody's moldy old basement suite, that's really about it for options. Well, is that, you know, in this city, over half of the people who live here are tenants. You know, so it's not really fair to exclude them from neighborhoods, which is essentially what's happening, particularly over on the west side, because there's no options out there. And if you try to actually do one of these type of projects, there's so much opposition to it that, it, you know, staff run for the hills or council turns it down or, or more likely developers just aren't prepared to go there in the first place. There's easier places to work. Throughout the, the 12 years and dealing with the council or various councils and, and the consultation process, like has it solidified your belief in in focusing primarily on the east side? Like, do you find it's easier to get things done? No. Um, you know, the neighborhood that I happen to be in happens to be a particularly difficult neighborhood to get things done, as I alluded to yeah. in my, you know, conversation about the approval of the, uh, the Jeff's project earlier. I tend to be, you know, like most developers, opportunistic. When I see opportunities that come along, then I'll take and pursue them. And I, you know, have to consider a whole bunch of different things when I take one of these projects on. Approvability, um, what's the form of development? How do I feel overall about, you know, the risk profile of this? Like, would I want to be building fancy high-end homes on the west side, for example? Probably not. That's not a market that I, uh, you know, because that's obviously got a much bigger uh, risk tolerance associated with. You can always sell more Buicks and you can sell Cadillacs. So I'd rather go and build, um, uh, you know, build Buicks. It's kind of hard to answer that question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, as I say, I don't, it's just one of the factors that I consider when I take a look at projects. I mean, obviously if a site's already got its entitlements and I don't have to go through rezoning exercise, you know, so much the better. Uh, but most of the ones that I've taken on have had to go through some sort of public process, whether it's a rezoning or an HRA, uh, like the the other project you were talking about, the Brookhouse one at the corner of Parker and Victoria, that was a rezone for that particular one. But fortunately with that one, because people had seen what happened with the Jeff's project and they generally liked it, uh, I think that if somebody else had come in and tried to do it, there probably would have been some resistance, but they went, well, we kind of know what this guy does. And we kind of like what he built over there, so that's okay. We still don't like him because he's a developer, but we we, <laughs> we we like the you know like the old houses that he's built. So the devil you know, yeah, exactly. It's the devil you know. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of curious in terms of how you find deals. So you're you mentioned opportunistic. It doesn't sound like it much matters from the outside looking in. It seems like you're fairly focused on, on you know you've done a lot in at least Grandview Woodlands. Can you talk about a little bit more? And you've kind of talked a little bit about this, but but what a deal looks like and, and how you go about finding them? Well, sometimes they find me now, just sort of through word of mouth. Uh, Burkhouse was a good example. That's a project that kind of came to me uh, because it was threatened with being torn down and the the neighborhood went nuts about it. And uh, so when the, the person who owned it at the time went in and approached the city about seeking a demolition permit to, you know, knock it down and then uh, gone, you know, went through the development permit process with the city. I actually got a call from senior staff at the city, one of whom happened to live just down the block from it at the time, and said, can we talk to you about this? So, 
Interesting. I, so I said, well, sure. So I went in and listened to what they had to say and kind of kicked around some ideas on a piece of tracing paper. But they said, well, if you can go out and cut a deal with the guy to buy the property, then, you know, then I think that this is probably generally a form of development that we could support. Essentially, it was a mini version of the Japs, the same form of development. It just was 10 units instead of 20. And it didn't have underground parking. It just had surface parking. But otherwise, it was the same thing. And eventually, the guy who was trying to develop the property and, well, knocked the house down and built duplexes, I think got frustrated with the bureaucracy and he called me up and asked if I'd still be interested in purchasing it. So I said, yes. And I, anyway, you can, so that's kind of started the whole process. In terms of other sites that come along, I, you know, provided they fit sort of within the criteria that I'm looking at, generally they're infill, they're wood frame in some way, shape or form, ground oriented, mixed juice, whatever they may be. And I can see that there's the ability to do something interesting with them, not just another type of cookie cutter project. Well, those are the sort of primary filters that I look at. And then, you know, and if it passes that test, then, then I take it to the next level and sort of peel the onion a little bit further, see if you can come up with a form of development that works, see if the economics work see whether or not you think it's approvable, where do you, you know, where are you going to need some variances from the city, where where will you, uh, you know, like, what can you do with this thing? And then if it, you know, passes out. Hey, everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Well, then just carry on with the process and off you go. You know, one one thing that, that strikes me, James, is, and it might be modesty, but in your brief description of yourself at the beginning, you said, I didn't even know what a title was. Uh, like a lot of this is um, like, if, if that's actually true, you've come a hell of a long way <laughs> uh, with a lot of money at stake and a lot of risk. Yeah. Um, like if for, for potential people even thinking about getting into the, the industry or, 
into investing or into building? Like what's one, I guess, piece of advice would you, would you give in terms of how to get to the level where you feel confident making these calls? Well, it's not just making calls. It's convincing people to also invest with me as well and convincing banks to lend me. So it's, you know, it goes beyond that. There is no way you can go, like there's no university course or anything like that that you can take that's going to teach you this. I mean, essentially stuff that I've learned, you know, maybe it's a plus that I didn't actually go and get trained in this business. I just went out and did it. You need to sort of follow your intuition. I've come to learn to trust my gut instinct a lot more than I used to. Otherwise you get into analysis paralysis and you spend all your time analyzing things and then nothing happens. You kind of get to a point where you go, well, I'm just these things I don't know and we don't know what's going to happen to the market, but you get to a point where you say, okay, I'm going to hold my nose and jump. And quite frankly, you know, over the years, just particularly in my early years, I spent a bunch of time going out and falling on my nose and you get up and you go, oh, that hurt. Don't do that again. Learn the lesson. And fortunately I was working for people at that point in time where we were supportive of that and, and helped sort of guide me in mentoring. But I, I sort of figured it out myself with the support and within the, you know, I, I guess I had a set of guide rails or guardrails that I kind of worked within and, and I got to live the ups and downs of the market. I mean, I don't think anybody had ever anticipated what was going to happen with Lehman Brothers when essentially we had a liquidity crisis and there was just everything stopped. And we all know what that looked like. And there were, you know, some people who survived that and there are a lot of people who didn't. It was really pretty awful, but I learned a pretty, uh, you know, there's a hard lesson to be learned there. You know, some of the projects that I've done, I mean, I'll be the first to admit that not all the projects I've done have been perfect. Uh, you know, some have fared better than others, uh, but I've, you know, I, I guess that what it's meant is when I go through and I look at sites now, it's, it's helped me to quickly filter things into different piles because there's a lot, you know, this business, when you're looking for sites, is a lot of like turning over rocks. You spend a lot of time turning over rocks and there's nothing underneath them, but sometimes you find something that's kind of cool, like the Just Project, for example, um, or, or even Ella. I mean, Ella sort of happened by happenstance. There happened to be a couple of properties that were for sale there and uh, the city originally designated for townhomes. So we went, oh, great, a little townhouse project. Perfect. I just did one of those and we know exactly what those look like. Uh, so we put together three, or I put together three properties and then that the last public open house that the city was having for uh, for Grandview Woodlands. I went up there and I looked at it and I went, oh, okay, it's not townhomes. Now it's C2. It's mixed use. I thought, oh, well, I guess my project got bigger. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> and then the neighbor to the immediate south who fought against it realized when the city approved it, he didn't want to be there anymore. And he found a lot out in, somewhere in Burnaby. And so he, wanted, he said, you want to buy it? So he said, sure. So next thing you know, we had the site that we've got now. And uh, at that point in time, because it had changed fairly dramatically, we brought in a, another partner, that being Trillium, who built the project. And you know, it turned out well, and you know what it looks like now. You walk past it all the time. It's worked out really, really well. Mm -hmm. We've got some, you know, local businesses that have shown up. A, a bakery, vegan baker. It's a company called Live For. It's Aaron Ireland, who's the principal. Who's uh, This is our first sort of foray into the retail world. And I'm really excited about that. We've got a family doctor. We've got a physio. You know, just the perfect kind of users and tenants that you want to see in an emerging neighborhood. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember at the outset of that, too, that we actually spent some time sitting down and thinking about what users did we not want there because we were we were going to set the tone for that neighborhood. So we actually deliberately excluded things like money marts and pot shops and all the rest of that, notwithstanding the fact we got approached by them because we were pioneers there. And it takes a bit of bravery if you're going to be a business to essentially set up a business in the middle of what's, you know, the wilderness. It'll fill in at some point in time, but it, you know, somebody's got to be brave to do that. And, you know, so we turned down, as they say, offers from probably a half a dozen pot shops that, uh, that, that approached us 
this over the course of, of the years. And we said, that's not the tone that we want to set for this. Right. It, it, it It's funny because you mentioned Ella as being like the first one in to kind of capitalize on, on the demand in the, in the area. But one thing that I've been thinking about, because I drive up and down Nanaimo every day, is now that Ella's built and there's the traffic calm nature of Nanaimo and there's, you know, a couple other signs about projects. It's, it's becoming so clear what Nanaimo is going to be. Like Ella is like the, oh, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And it, it's going to be a great addition to the community. In some ways, you know, what do they say? Pioneers. Pioneers either do really well or they get shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I was, uh, but, um, but yeah, I think probably for these next projects, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to, to make the case. Well, it does to a certain extent, but also we made a point of ensuring that we, you know, really upped the game in terms of the appearance of the building. You know, the building is mostly clad in brick, for example, right. which is much more expensive cladding material than just doing standard hardy panel. Uh, but we wanted to do that because that sets the tone. Um, it sets the tone in terms of who you're going to attract for both your residents as well as your commercial, but it's also going to set the tone for the rest of the neighborhood as well. So anybody else who wants to develop in there is going to look at that and the market's going to say, well, that's the bar that you need to meet. And if you don't want to meet the bar, that's fine, but you're going to get, you're going to suffer if you do that. Uh, you know, so those were some conscious decisions that we made. And as I say, we, we spent more than we needed to as a consequence of that. We sort of kind of, we could have gone cheap and cheerful if we wanted to, but we chose not to. Because quite frankly, in 20 years from now, I want to be able to walk by this thing and go, I did that. Right, yeah. Rather than something that I'd really rather forget about. How much do you worry about what the market's doing in terms of analyzing projects? Well, again, that's part of the reason that having sometimes smaller infill projects like Brookhouse is is kind of nice. I, like I have this portfolio of sort of smaller projects like Brookhouse types projects. I've got another one that I'm doing on Napier right now, which is another heritage conversion. Oh, is that by the St. Francis? Yeah, it's right across yeah, the street yeah. from me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a small project. It's only seven units. It's a heritage conversion plus some single family infill. But those projects are fairly, I won't, nothing's recession proof, but they're, they're, you know, they're fairly safe places to be when you've got a bit of a downturn. So I like to have small ones like that because, you know, quite frankly, you don't really make a lot on those. They're, you know, a place to kind of keep you busy and I guess earn a salary, but that's about it. And then some smaller, some larger projects as well. And so the, you know, the sort of the proportion of smaller and larger projects that I've got is just a function of what the market looks like. I mean, right now with construction costs running wild and with interest rates on a fairly solid upward trajectory, it's really, my crystal ball is pretty murky right now. And I think a lot of people's crystal balls are murky. Do you think focusing on missing middle is giving you a bit of a buffer in the market? Well, everybody's suffering from the same, you know, the, the same issues. It's all about affordability, whether you're serving right. missing middle or people who are, you know, a bit better off or, you know, who, wherever you are in that particular segment. When interest rates go from, you know, sub 2% to north of 4%, which we've seen in the past six months, it affects everybody. It doesn't matter what buyer class you are. It does strike me, though, like the... That, that project you're talking about just off of Napier by the by the church, there's, at least in my mind, there's so much demand for that neighborhood. And if, like, that stuff should get bought up pretty quick. It's not like you're going to be competing with a lot of other similar type of homes. Well, that's the thing I like about these little infill projects. I don't have a lot of competition. Right. Uh, you know, if you want, particularly when you're doing a heritage house, if you want to live in this house, you're dealing with one person, you're dealing with me, which is, which is nice. And, and, you know, of course it makes them unique as well. So I, you know, I regard that 
as I say, no project's bulletproof, but I regard that as being a safer place to be while we see what, you know, where everything settles out when, uh, you know, when the market settles down a little bit. You know, people ask me, well, what are you going to sell these for? Because I've had a few people who have expressed an interest in me. And I said, well, I, tell me what the market's going to look like in 24 months and I'll tell you what they're going to be worth. You know, maybe more, maybe less. I, I really don't know. So that's, um, you know, it's it's a challenge that every builder faces when they go into, uh, you know, a project, whether it's an LSI's project or whether it's something the size of Napier or something in between or, or even larger for that matter. And are there kind of steps you're taking to mitigate against those risks? I guess the different types of projects and diff- the smaller ones and the potentially the larger ones, but like in terms of supply chain issues or just general inflation and the cost to build, like, is there anything that that you're able to to do to kind of lock some some of that certainty in around around costs and it's hard. I mean, the only thing you can really fix is your land price. And then, you know, what your your fees are that you pay to the city, all those keep, keep going up. But, you know, when it comes to buying lumber, you're at the mercy of whatever the lumber market is at that point in time. The same goes for concrete and a lot of the other commodities, steel. You know, and I mean, you can lock in trades, but the fact of the matter is, is if they, you know, the, the trades aren't going to show up and work for you if they're going to go broke, if they've committed to build something for you at a certain price, like an electrician, for example, and then they discover the price of their wire is doubled. Well, you know, we've got to sit down and have a conversation about that because we, you know, they've they've got to earn a living. I recognize that, but ultimately, it all comes back to me as a developer. So I can't. It's it's really hard to mitigate against, you know, these things. So I think really the only thing you can do is there's you know there's various points when you go through a project where you've got to make a major decision. You know, you're either going to buy a site or you're not going to buy a site. If you buy a site, well, you're committed to it, and then you move forward. You get all your entitlements. And then you decide whether you're going to undertake the next step, which is to go and commit a bunch more capital to the building, sorry, to the project to build the building, or you just sit for a while, sit in the weeds and wait for the market to improve. So those are, you know, those are really the only two discrete entry or exit points that you've got in a project. But once you started building, you're going to the finish line because uh, you've, you know, you can't sell something that's half finished. I'm, I'm just thinking one thing that kind of stood out throughout the conversation is this kind of doubling down on a, on like a niche style of building or having a set criteria. Now you're at a stage where projects are, are coming to you and it seems like a really great business model just to, to really specialize in a certain type of thing that a lot of developers are not going to take on. I think about there's this realtor who sells float homes Oh, yeah. and, <laughs> and and no realtor, wants to learn, no realtor wants to learn how to sell a float home and the, and the challenges that come along with that. So the amount of referrals that, that she gets, uh, you know, to, uh, to sell float homes, uh, not my cup of tea, but there's riches in the niches, I guess, in what you've kind of created with, with focusing on projects well, like this. Yes and no. I mean, I, th- I think it's... <laughs> You know, I wouldn't go so far as to use the term riches, but it does it does help when things sort of come to my attention that happen to fit in the lane. I mean, that, that I'm in the lanes that I've decided to operate in. You know, and I sort of thought about that as I say initially, and just as I've gone through and done some projects, it sort of f- further reinforced that the place that I'm in right now is a good place for me because I don't really want to grow and be more than I am right now. In fact, I've probably got too much that I've taken on. And, uh, you know, I'll leave the big, you know, if, if you're a, a developer who goes out and builds the, you know, the big condo towers, well, I'll leave that to the West Banks and the other world. Let them operate in that. And that's that's what they do. And then there's, you know, the guys who operate out of their back of the truck and build a couple of duplexes a year. And I'm sort of living that place in between. And that's that's just been a good place for me to be in. It's, as I say, as I've done some projects and I've learned some lessons, because every time you do a project, there's, there's some teachable moments that you learn. I would have never expected that somebody would have come in and bought four townhouse or sorry, condo units based 
on a flyer they got in the mail, <laughs> for example. You know, this I've been doing this long enough. There's not much that surprises me anymore, but every once in a while I do get a surprise like that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also you, you sort of, I, I don't know, it's, you know, it kind of comes back to what you were talking about before. How do you learn all this stuff? Well, as I say, it's it's been evolutionary. It's just stuff that I've collected and I've stuck at the back of my cranium as uh, you know as I've gone through this 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 followed this trail uh, over the years, which has certainly been an interesting trail. It's had its ups and downs, as everything in life does, you know. But if if you're able to sort of pick off some key lessons as you go through these things and then make sure that you sort of focus on what it is that you're doing and, and you've, you've found a lane that works for you. Don't go out and try to be something else. You see a lot of developers out there who go out and try to be something else because they suddenly think they're really smart because they went out and did a few projects and made some money on it. And maybe the reason they made money wasn't that they did anything right. It may have been the market bailed them out. You know, if a market like me, anybody, any developer who hasn't been able to make some money and make a project work in the, in the past 12 months or 24 months really has got no business being in the business. They they made money because they got lucky. And, you know, where the rubber really hits the road is when you run into a time like we've got now where you, you know, the tide's gone out and you see who's been swimming without the shorts on. You know, this is a time where you're going to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, but there's a lot of people in those good times who go and start deciding they're going to expand into different forms of development. You know, they're a wood frame builder and they decide to go into concrete or they expand into other municipalities, other jurisdictions. They decide they're going to go to the interior down to the U.S. or whatever. And when things turn, they're going to get murdered. So I've, you know, I, I, was pretty clear about what it was that I wanted to do when I set out on it, and I've stuck to that. I don't deviate from that. Good times or bad. We, we've talked a lot about East Vancouver. Are there any other neighborhoods that you're excited about in, in the Lower Mainland? Uh, I like Burnaby. Uh, I like the infill areas in Burnaby. I've got a site actually up in North Burnaby on the Hastings Strip that I'm working on right now. And we're also like South Surrey. I've done a number of projects in South Surrey, and actually the areas around like Fleetwood. I've done half a dozen projects in Fleetwood over the years. I've never really understood Fleetwood, but the market loves it. So I've always liked doing projects there. Uh, where else? Um, you know, say Burnaby. I haven't done anything in Coquitlam, but it's a place that I'd like to be. I know a number of staff members in Coquitlam pretty well. Uh, you know, those are ones sort of top of mind. I mean, I, I used to do a lot more stuff in a lot of other jurisdictions around the lower mainland, but again, you know, this, because each municipality is its own almost sort of microcosm. You have to keep on top of local politics and local building conditions and local markets and the submarkets in each of them. Like Surrey's huge, for example. You know, there's only so much I can do as a one-man band. So I've, I've kind of brought my focus back a, a little bit and I've been focusing predominantly on the stuff that's you know closer to home, if you will. So that's Vancouver, whether it's west side or east side, you know, Burnaby and, and South Surrey. Well, Surrey in general, but most recently South Surrey because I've had a couple of projects there that I've done over the past few years. The phenomenon of people wanting to buy back into the neighborhood, is that something that feels stronger in East Vancouver or do you, do you see that in, in every area you develop? God, it's hard to say. I don't really... I'm not really sure I know how to answer that question. I think that the things in East Vancouver that I've done, I just can speak to recent experience on that, that there are people who've left and have wanted to come back to East Vancouver and they didn't, there weren't any options for them that were affordable or that fit their particular, um, you know, their particular needs in life. Um, you know, the other things, uh, like for example, the projects I've done in in Surrey recently, there's single family homes, there's lots of single family homes in Surrey, so I wouldn't say that that's something where somebody's come back from somewhere. It's just basically a, you know, a newer, a, a new house in a neighborhood that was predominantly older houses. So, 
I, I don't think there's people coming back from anywhere to, you know, to move into these particular projects that I've done. They just simply are moving around the neighborhood because they wanted to be in, you know, we did one called uh, West Point, which was 49 homes in Ocean Park, which is sort of like the Steveston of Surrey, if you will, right at the extreme southwest corner of Surrey. And the vast majority of people who bought in there were just people who, you know, there's not a lot of new housing stock in the neighborhood because it's, you know, it's an established neighborhood. Most of the new stuff there is... You know, most of the housing stock is probably 30 to 40 years old, apart from the occasional old house that gets knocked down, new one gets built. So this was, you know, the, the first new, probably the last community of any size that got built down there. Because say there were 49 of them. So uh, the people that we attracted there were predominantly people moved around the neighborhood who just wanted something new. You know, they were they had a choice of, you know, the 30 or 40 year old house that they had. Well, you know, it didn't quite suit them and it needed a bunch of renovations. So they thought, well, we can spend a quarter million dollars or half a million dollars renovating this or we just take that money and we buy something new. Maybe as a, as a final question, James, um, we've kind of talked about, you know, mitigating risk and, and challenges with in every market this moment and we'll timestamp it at the start of July, uh, 2022, how are you engaging this specific market? Like would, would you be buying right now if there's the right opportunity or are you like, ah, we're kind of six months, let's let the dust settle. Or is it business as usual, you know, turning over those rocks, looking for the right project. What, where are you at right now? Well, I'm very cautious. I think that you find pretty much all my colleagues are cautious right now. You know, I never really say no to anything, but the lens that I use to evaluate things is a lot smaller than it would have been 24 months ago when things were great and it looked like the trajectory was kind of going to go up and up. And I'm, you know, I'm still cautious whether it looks like, you know, the world's just going to continue to go up in perpetuity because we all know that whatever goes up always comes down at some point in time or sort of levels off. But, you know, like there was something that landed on my desk here last week that I looked at. I'm like, well, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to spend a little more time diving into it. I don't know whether or not it's something that I'm going to take and do or not. But, you know, I, I, I'm not just saying don't call me because I'm not interested in talking to you for the next 12 months. Right. Because it does two things. Firstly, it keeps you in the market so you can kind of understand what's going on out there. And secondly, maybe there's a, something out there that might actually be, you know, interesting that where I can find, uh, you know, some way to kind of add some value to a site that other people haven't been able to. I mean, the one thing about most developers, particularly the larger ones, is that they, you know, they just, they basically have a, a model that you fall in, right? They got a box, right? Like, this is what we do. And uh, it's like a big factory, like Polygon, for example, right? What do they build? Well, we know what Polygon builds and they've got a factory. If you've got a site that f- falls in this particular criteria, we'll take a look at it and off we go. If it doesn't, see you later. If, if you get these kind of weird things like I've had where it doesn't really quite fit any particular box, well, there's a spot for me. There's a little niche in there for, for me and other people who, who want to sort of maybe give something a second look and then spend a little time being creative. Like, for example, I'm doing a 20-unit rental building on Broadway and Fraser right now. And it was an old heritage building that had essentially been, you know, had a big fire, I don't know, about six or seven years ago. And it was falling down. The city had issued a demolition order. It was a Heritage C, I think, building. So it came to my attention. I looked at it and I thought, maybe we can do something here. So I sort of kicked around a few ideas, had a meeting with planning staff and said, well, if we do this, this, and this, we can maybe make this thing work and salvage it. And planning staff said, well, okay, um, you know, like where do you need variances? Where, you know, how, how do you, we basically went back and forth across the table and came up with something that worked for me and worked for staff that fell, fell within the parameters of the zone uh, in that particular area. And now it's underway. So, but that was that was sort of a little, little weird one-off 
you know, kind of thing that, you know, that fit in my wheelhouse because, you know, most of the site had been on the market for years. Nobody had taken the thing up on it. And in the meantime, it was the bricks were falling off the building and hitting pedestrians on the sidewalks. So the city, understandably, was worried about it and wanted it down. You know, so I, I just looked at it, I guess, through a different lens and thought, well, maybe there's a way we can make this thing work. And it's underway now and hope to have it done next year. And do you hold those rentals or... Um, on this one, I don't know. We'll see what the world looks like when we get to the finish line. You know, <laughs> the economics of rentals look a lot different at 2% than they do at 4 to 5% or what are the interest rates going to be when we get to the finish line. James, maybe we'll leave it there, but uh, we do have this segment called the Five Wire, five lighthearted questions to end the show. Can you stick around for that? Sure, go ahead. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay, so question number one, what is your favorite neighborhood in the Lower Mainland, I'll say? Oh, boy. I don't know, can I give you a top three? <laughs> sure. Well, I really like Main Street. Commercial Drive is self-explanatory. Uh, you know, given that I live there and I've done a few projects in there. I don't know, there's some real sort of neat little hidden gems when you're you, you're in that corridor between, uh, sort of in, in that Fraser corridor or along Main Street, just because those neighborhoods sort of grew organically. When you go west of Ontario, of course, everything was planned because that was all part of the old CPR land grant, so everything's very tiny perfect, and you've got this regular sort of street grid that's there. But when you get east of east of Ontario, between that and Fraser, nothing quite fits, and it's really cool. You know, you go around these corners, and you just never know what you're going to run into because, oh, street ends. Like, why did it end there? What's going on and you know this these forms of development so those are the top three that come to mind i really like the west end too it's really neat just thinking that you biked over here like do you find that that you're biking around vancouver is that like a useful way to to really get to know the dead ends i guess when you ride into them i never and i never really thought about it that way i just bike to get the exercise and i enjoy it when the sun actually shows up which we've had a rare showing of here today All right. Uh, Question number two for you, James. Uh, You're on death row. What's your last meal? (laughs) A nice pasta dinner from the Italian Cultural Center. Oh, interesting. I had a lasagna from there not long ago. Good stuff. Uh, One book that you'd recommend for our listeners? Well, right now I'm reading Red Notice by Bill Browder, which is interesting. Red, I red. think we've had Red Notice really? as a recommendation. Well, it's also, it's very topical because, of course, what's going on in Russia right, right. now. So it's, it's, you know, it's a very interesting story. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's great. One piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self. Don't do what I'm doing now. Get a real job. <laughs> Undo the whole interview. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I feel like most people listening would go, man, I wish I was doing what that guy's doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I told my kids. I said, I don't want you to go, don't do what I'm doing. Go get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> and last last but not least, something that you've purchased for under $1,500 that's had a positive impact on your life in the last little while. Oh, my new DeWalt cordless drill set and tool set. That's a great one. <laughs> that, that is a great one. So so James, usually this is the the part of the interview where we say, how can people find out more about you? 
it sounds like you're in the process of uh, a branding exercise, but yeah, it's about uh, time. It's time for me to get a business card. It's been 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> and and the company's name, it sounds like it, you, no one's going to be able to find it yet, but just uh, Helmsman Projects. Helmsman Projects. Okay. Well, thanks again, James, for your time. That was uh, that was fantastic. Great. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with James Evans. You know, I always think of James as a East Van builder, but clearly he's uh, he, he's he's much larger than that. And uh, man, just a great conversation. Yeah, you know, it, it's always uh, great having developers on the show, but it's it's awesome having people that like like James that feel like just ordinary guys kind of working through the market. <laughs> um, it, it's not like, you know, like the Colin Boza of the world uh, where... You know, Colin Boza, it was fantastic having him on the program, but it's just a, it's a, it's a different business model, right? Like James is, as he called himself, kind of the one man band. The one man band. Yeah. And, and building stuff in the community he lives and really adding in a lot of cases that missing middle type housing. You know, I liked when he, he also said, you know, I don't, I'm not in, interested in building Cadillacs. I, I like building Buicks. Yeah. And you like driving Buicks. And <laughs> this is, this is why, this is why we really had James on the program. You're looking for a new car. You know, what's funny. It is, almost, I should say, cause I reached out to James. Yeah. Um, and I kind of had to twist his arm a little bit to get him to even come on the show. So right. we're lucky to have him even, st- even, and not that he was like, oh, I'm too busy. He was like, eh, I'm kind of, I'm, yeah. I'm the guy behind uh, the scenes type guy. Man, and I'm not a car snob by any stretch. In fact, I- uh, <laughs> Walking it back. <laughs> I'm walking it back a bit, but here's something crazy that I saw the other day that really took me back. And this is going to resonate with you. Uh, I walked by a Pontiac 6000 <laughs> SE I think they're Ellie, yeah. Ellie, Ellie, yeah, yeah, yeah. the luxury edition. Yeah, well, that's where uh, the windows actually had, uh, <laughs> had the automatic up was and that down. Powered, powered. I think windows? it was power was windows. Yeah, I think it was. I kind of had to crane my neck back and and look inside. Holy man, what? Pontiac like, six thousand. Yeah, I don't know anything about cars, but apparently those were the years where Pontiac really. Here's just, what I remember about a Pontiac six thousand. So what was it? Nineteen eighty six. Yeah. We're going out of town. The old man buys a Pontiac 6000. Right. Was it 86? I think it was 86. I might have the year wrong by about a year or two. Like police blue. It's like it, police blue <laughs> police and like velour seats. Like drives it off the out of the dealership, basically rams all three of us kids in the back. Yeah. Fighting. We hit the outskirts of the city and it dies. Seriously? Yeah. Don't you remember that? No. Oh my God. It was like oh, a I was, brand I was new. Only yeah, you were like four or something like that. But I mean, Probably old enough to know better than to get a Pontiac 6000. <laughs> you know, I was four, but honestly, that was. Uh, I feel like it was like literally the day, the, the same day. Really? Yeah. Drive it off the lot and oh, it God. immediately died. You know what's crazy though is like if your legacy is like a lot of people have different legacies in their family. <laughs> my legacy was not only did my dad drive a Pontiac 6000, his dad did too. <laughs> what else do we have, Adam? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. Yes. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for things like the live wire. This is where you can see those stats we talked about yourself. Those are stats that are not just freely available, but they are for people that sign up for the live wire. The real estate board stats, deal of the month, VIP presale access, residential and commercial episode updates and, and all the rest. And we have, I think we mentioned a couple of weeks back 
We were talking about a project, Hue, which we right. just sent out to the live wire. Hue by Marcon, really, really interesting project in Port Moody. And, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think they're going to blow that out. So right. it sort of speaks to the market right now. Um, Crazy that, like, honestly, like, uh, I don't want to go too overboard here, but that Marcon project is so kind of awesome, eh? Like, it's on so many levels. And I, I'm just saying that from the, like, the floor plans are kind of great. I love Port Moody. The price points are fantastic. The rents Parking that they're projecting, I think, are, are going to be. And and I'm, uh, I, it's funny, but I was at the display center with some other people and just talking to agents. And the general consensus with Marcon, and uh, and we've had them on the program, obviously, in the past, but they are a sponsor of the program as well. Yeah, exactly. We should say, full disclosure. Yeah, full disclosure there. But, but man. This though, has nothing to do with that, though. No, but great reputation. It kind of feels like buying up. There's There are some developers out there that that, that you just, it's like, man, these guys do a really, really great job. I, I And I also feel like, you know, when half the realtors you talk about are actually buying units themselves. So many realtors are buying in that project. Yeah. Um, like, I could name five right now. I won't. But yeah, like five that I come to mind that I've already talked to that are like, yeah, I'm picking up a one bed. Yeah, um, no, some it's, it's, courtyard side, some on St. John's, but uh, man, I think people are going to win on that project. Yeah, no, 100%. And that's on the live wire as well. We also have, Adam, private client services. Because Matt, if you're not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free, available at your fingertips. You just have to head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, sign up for your free PCS account today. And uh, man, what a time to be monitoring PCS because you are going to see sale prices before the general public. This is something that will populate in real time when stuff sells. And therefore, you get to know what the market's doing. That's right. If you want to talk about that or anything else, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line, info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week. Man, I was just thinking when we were eating this chocolate, this is uh, the Cartagena trip. Uh, it's, yeah, it's man, all bets are off. I got to start training. I got to start training. <laughs> I even, I'm, uh, I, I even, I'm, I'm in a bad, did I'm Did I say a, I biked to work today? I can't even imagine. I'm like rolling home. I'm literally, uh, yeah, going to be in a garbage bag on the beach. <laughs> Have a good week, guys. Take care. 2,000 spaces for radio. Subscribe today.